Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Lever Ball Show. And on this episode, I am joined by Carlene Kudak and Julie Bowditch from the CASA Project Worcester County. Um, and this is an organization, they have multiple locations. Um, uh, Carlene and Julie are, as I mentioned, at the Worcester location, um, and they work with abused and neglected children, providing them with resources. Um, and I actually um, had a chance to meet them at one of my broadcasts. Um, I was doing a uh, sideline reporting gig for the Massachusetts Pirates of the Indoor Football League. And they were there actually at the game. You guys were honored. And you guys, before the game, you had a table set up during the game to kind of educate people on what you do. And, you know, a big part of why I wanted to go over and, and introduce myself is that, you know, your cause is something that uh, is relatable for me. You know, and as I mentioned um, to you guys, we met, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I had a family therapist uh, recommend that I don't live with my parents full time anymore because my mother was severely mentally ill and had been abusing me. Um, and I had to, at age 16, you know, go to boarding school in a different state. Um, but a big part of also why I wanted to have you guys on the podcast is the fact that, you know, my situation was rough, but while I had a mother who was mentally ill and abusing me, my family also had the financial resources to send me to a boarding school. And, you know, and, and the plan that basically my father and the family therapist put in place was that I would go to boarding school and my father would take care of my mother, which taking care of a mentally ill adult is a lot like taking care of a child. It's a huge responsibility. He was doing that while working full time. And I was going to go to boarding school and try to have the most normal teenage experience that I could have. But a lot of families in my situation, in our situation, don't have the resources to spend to send their kid to a boarding school. And a lot of kids and families in the situation that we were in have it even worse. And I think that's why it's so important for organizations like CASA to exist, to provide some of those resources. But um, I won't just talk on and on and on and give you guys a headache. I will shut up. But how was my description of CASA? Was there anything I left out? What should people know about your organization? No, I think you you did a really good job nailing the, the intro. Um, we're happy to be here with you. And, um, and thanks for sharing a little bit about your story, too. The only thing I would add to sort of context about CASA is that um, it's C-A-S-A, CASA, and that stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. So that's sometimes like a brand identity uh, challenge for us. Um, and it's just what it sounds like. We advocate through the courts for the best interests of vulnerable children, largely abused and neglected, as you mentioned. Um, and you're right that CASA is a national organization. We are a standalone nonprofit. Our, we have our own 501c3 here in Worcester County. Um, but you're right that it's national and um, there are almost a thousand programs actually throughout the country now. But fun fact, Worcester County was um, one of the first pilot programs in the country. We were founded 42 years ago and um, we were one of the nine original programs that were founded. Um, actually, a judge is who who sort of like uh not only founded it, but kind of like came up with the concept of CASA and then the necessity for CASA. 
And, um, and so we're the oldest and we remain the largest program here in Massachusetts. Actually, we're now one of seven programs, which we're thrilled about, um, because that means a much larger portion of the state is being served. Um, but we, like I said, we, we serve, we have our own 501c3 and, um, and so Casa Project Worcester County serves really the whole birth of central mass all the way to the New Hampshire border down to the Rhode Island border. It's about 60 towns and cities with obviously the city of Worcester being the largest of those, um, which of course you're familiar with because that's where we met. Um, so that's like a little bit of our, our, you know, um, in a nutshell about sort of CASA and what we are and, um, what it's all about and how we started. Great. Great. And so you mentioned, you know, we talked about there are lots of locations. You guys are one of the originals. So you guys are actually, uh, I'm talking to some of the OGs from, uh, CASA, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but, uh, you know, Carlene, do you have anything to add or, I mean, did Julie kind of knock it out of the park? No, I think between the two of you, there is truly nothing else to add. Um, I think that was spot on. Absolutely. And, you know, Carly, I'm curious also, how did you uh, first get interested in, in working with the organization? So funny enough, um, about 10 years ago, I actually interned with CASA um, because I wanted to go into law. I wanted to be a lawyer when I was younger. Um, and then as I continued to grow and go through school, I realized that advocacy has a lot of pathways. You can be a lawyer or you can do something different. And so through some local connections that I have from my hometown, I was reintroduced to CASA um, in a part-time job. And then it kind of just all spiraled into where we are now. Which, the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think actually Carlene's story even kind of speaks a little bit to um, some of the frequent questions we get around sort of like folks who want to engage with us um, in the community. And we're a largely volunteer driven organization. So we have, even though we only have a staff of 11, strong, small, but mighty, we like to say, <laughs> but um, we have over 230 volunteers um, at any given time. So one of the questions we get a lot is, do I have to ha be an attorney? You know, do I have to have a legal background? Do I have to be a caseworker? Do I have to be a therapist, um, either to volunteer or, you know, to to even be an employee here? And the answer is no, I am not an attorney. Don't look to me for legal advice. <laughs> um but so the kind of I think it speaks to sort of the accessibility too of folks who actually we do our work best when there are people with all different backgrounds and experiences um, that are involved with us. So um, I think Carlene's sort of uh, path to CASA, if you will, is actually the perfect perfect way to frame that. Well, and I'm curious also, you know, as far as how the structure of everything works. So what percentage of the people who are involved are full-time employees versus part-time employees versus pure volunteers? Yeah, so we um, we have our employees, we have 11 employees. A couple of them work part-time hours, but um, most of us are full-time and then some, some weeks. <laughs> um, but so that means that a huge percentage is volunteers and they're strictly volunteers, truly, you know, people who are, um, you know, sort of angels on earth, if you will, who are um, dedicating. It's not a small volunteer role at all. It's a really large commitment. Um, and I'll let Carlene share a little bit more about what that looks like for our volunteers. But without our volunteers, we 
literally couldn't do our work. Um, and they're the ones who are actually, they're the, there are the CASA, they're the court appointed special advocates. Um, there are volunteers. And, um, so that's like where the whole name comes from is, is those folks. And like we said, really other than being over 21 and, you know, um, being able to pass a background check, um, other than that, Ultimately, like we actually prefer folks who have a variety of backgrounds and experiences to um, to volunteer with us, whether it's an age, gender, ex- life experience, um, professional experience, uh, but also um, languages, cultures, religions, all that, because, of course, that's what our community is. It's super diverse. Um, lots of languages are spoken. Lots of cultures are, and backgrounds are represented. And so we can be the best at what we do and our advocates can be most successful when they can relate to um, the youth we serve and they sort of see themselves in, in those, those individuals. Absolutely. Um, and so, and, and uh, Carlene, I mean, what would you uh, say as far as, you know, what makes a good, uh, a good volunteer for your organization? Um, I think the two words that always come to mind are dedicated and passionate. Um, the people that, are part of our volunteer team are taking a large portion of their lives to advocate for a child or a sibling group. Um, they go to monthly visits. They are contacting all of the collaterals on the case, like a therapist, a doctor, the school teachers, guidance counselors, really anyone that has an interaction with the children that they're serving. Um, they're able to attend the court hearings if they would like to after um, they get in touch with their supervisor. So they are dedicated to taking that time every single month to making those contacts and ensuring that their report is thorough enough that a judge can see the the full picture of what that youth, the, the youth that they are serving is going through. Um, and passionate, you can't do that work without having it come from the heart. So they have ginormous hearts and they just love on everyone in their community so much that they they never want anyone to have their futures dimmed at all they want to give them the best hope and the brightest future that they can and it's really inspirational to be able to work alongside people like that um we always talk about every couple months right now we run three trainings per year and it's almost like onboarding a whole new set of coworkers who just reinvigorate the work that we do and make you so much more motivated to just keep going, which is incredible. Well, and, you know, I'm curious also, um, you know, as far as the kids that your organization works with, is it mostly kids who are estranged from their parents or maybe estranged from one parent and live with another? Or uh, what are some of the the backgrounds of of kids who uh, benefit from working with your organization? That's a really good question. It's so different from case to case. But the one thing that is consistent is that we're never on a case unless a judge assigns us. So obviously what that tells you is that um, situation has gone into the legal system. So often the youth we serve are not living with one of their biological parents, although it's not always the case, but it's frequently the case. Um, They may, however, be living with, you know, in a kinship placement. So living with a family member um, who's able to sort of bridge that gap while we try to sort of 
um, provide resources and um, supports for their parents to get back on track and to be able to reunify with them. Um, that is ultimately the goal. We don't, we're not here to pull families apart. Um, and actually you touched on it right in your introduction, right? Like the, the factors that impact families um, and those disparities um, are such a huge factor. And we see it every single day, you know, and the data obviously shows not only locally, but na nationally, you know, how um, different resourced folks and, and lots of other factors, um, demographic factors, and uh, specifically poverty and um, and folks of color are just disproportionately impacted by um, by challenges and really being able to sustain a family unit safely. Um, and so, you know, um, it all looks different to answer your question in terms of of the cases, but some kids are living in foster families, some kids are living in residential placements. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes those things change through the course of a case, sometimes even many times. So again, really, we want to minimize the trauma and the challenges that these kids are already sort of going through. Yeah, there's no question about it. And it's interesting how, you know, everyone's background is a little different. I'm sure every case with every kid you work with is a little bit different. It's not like there's just one set of circumstances. And, you know, I think one one misconception some people might have is that it only happens to certain types of people. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, whether it's in my family, child abuse or you know, partner abuse and domestic violence, it could happen with anyone. And there might be stereotypes for which types of people deal with those issues, you know, it, but it can happen to anyone. And, and that was the thing, you know, with, with my family was that, you know, my father is a professor at a well-known university. So we had this image of being a very stable family. And, you know, I had this image of like being a kid who had a really easy childhood. And I don't think anyone would, want to experience my childhood if they knew what it was like on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think we also need to eliminate some of the stereotypes about the people who have, you know, traumatic home environments and also some of the stigma of talking about it. Um, you know, I actually, so it was last year when I first talked publicly about my experience, you know, with child abuse and at the time, I was doing a different podcast, which I co-hosted with an NFL player. And we were in the top almost 1% of most downloaded podcasts worldwide. So it was a big platform. It's not a place to talk about things that you want to keep private. So I talked about a big platform. Um, and I talked about everything that happened to me, like in detail. It was very graphic. I was the, put a warning in the episode, like, this is graphic, you know, um, but... I remember at the time, the girl I was dating, her parents told me that I shouldn't have done that and that it was embarrassing. And, you know, the reason I did that was to try to raise awareness of the issue and also make other people who had those experiences not feel as badly about it. And my intentions were positive, but there still is a stigma involving, and like I said, certain stereotypes that get in the way of progressing with this, this issue. So what are some ways that your organization tries to work around the stigma and the stereotypes? I think one of the biggest things that we always come back to is that parents often can be demonized by these things, um, what they're facing in life, but they are not like that at all. Um, many parents 
are just trying to do the best that they can and give their children the best lives possible so that they can um, grow up being loved and cared for and nurtured so that eventually they can go off into the world and be successful and give back to their community in any ways possible. And sometimes when you're under-resourced, it's not easy. And sometimes it's not possible. You have to be able to be connected with the correct resources and the correct people. And that means building a network. And how are you supposed to do that when you have to work three jobs? And if you can't get childcare and you need to take the day off and you don't get that paycheck, what does that mean? Um, I think people need to realize that it's not, it's not a parent issue. It's a systems issue. Um, and there are a lot of things that need to be done to repair the systemic problems that we're seeing in order to support these parents and uplift these parents so that they can do the things that they want to do. Because many parents, most parents, want their children to succeed and have a good life and feel supported and confident. And when we see a lot of the kids in our um, that we advocate for, their their parents are at those court hearings and they are saying, I'm doing what I can and I'm trying my best and I really want my son or my daughter to come home. Um, and they're working the best that they can, but sometimes the system is hard to beat. Yeah, and Leverett, I think you touched on it too, right? When you said um, there's a lot of stigma around like, you, I don't think you use these words, so I don't mean to put them in your mouth, but like bad families, right? And it's like, we don't actually believe there are bad families. We believe that there are families who are have very real challenges. Mental health is so, so pervasive. And like you said, the stigma, you know, around talking about it and handling it and addressing it. And then, you know, substance abuse, add that into the mix, you know, and then just the lack of resources like Carlene was talking about. And when you throw sort of like those all together and you you add in a system of of oppression for for folks, it's just a recipe for disaster for these kids, right? But I think I'm so grateful to you for talking about not only your story and sharing your story and be, being brave enough to sort of like lay some pathways and you have no idea how many people that might embolden or empower um, or, or might be able to relate and say, oh my gosh, you know, this is a story that, that you know, somebody is able to sort of come on the other side of, if you will, um, and talk about. And um, and I think it is really meaningful and um, powerful. Definitely. Yeah. And I think you both made a, a lot of good points about the misconceptions about the families that have some of these issues. And like, for example, with my mother, when things kind of went downhill for her was when she had brain cancer because they had to radiate her brain in order to kill the cancer, but they basically fried her brain and she would have died otherwise. And what they had to do to save her life very badly damaged her brain. And this isn't necessarily a proper medical term, but when they, when her brain was badly damaged, she went crazy. And, you know, she was an honorable person. She couldn't control her behavior. And, and so that might have been one misconception people had when I talked about what happened to me was that I was trying to trash my family or trash my mother. And she did do a lot of things that really, really hurt me. But she really did want to be a good parent. And she did the best she could. And it just I don't think anyone who's severely mentally ill and has a traumatic brain injury has the capacity to be a good parent. I mean, now, I mean, my, my parents are divorced. But the last time my dad went to visit her, 
she didn't know who he was. So again, we're talking about severe mental illness and some people who grew up in more stable families might not understand some of the challenges that, that people go through. Um, but, uh, you know, before we wrap things up, I mean, I know you guys had to suffer through an entire interview with me, but, uh, before I wrap things up, you know, um, what are some ways that, you know, people can, uh, volunteer, you know, apply to volunteer or donate or get involved. And, you know, also where can people find you on social media? Um, and how can people connect with your organization? So we always want to remind people they can go to the casaproject.org because that's the number one place to get connected to us in so many different ways, learn more about our mission, whether you want to learn about volunteering, donating, or even find our social media pages, which are very active. So like you mentioned, which we appreciate, um, thecasaproject.org is our website. Um, and we're also really active on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So those are other places under Casa Worcester that folks can find us and learn more about us and follow along. Because even if the time might not be right for folks in this moment, you know, we talked about a big commitment and all these things. Um, that doesn't mean that down the road that might not change. Or even if they are just out there sort of engaging with us or learning about us, talking about us, sharing our content, you have no idea who that will reach and touch. Um, and and really, we talk about our sort of tagline being changing a child's story. And um, and so it really just takes folks like you, Leverett, who are helping us share the message of our mission and then um, and your listeners, too, to help get that word out there. Absolutely. Um, well, yeah, well, thank you both, uh, you know, for joining me on the podcast. And, um, you know, definitely everyone, if you're interested in getting involved or reaching out, um, definitely do so. Uh, but once again, thank you to uh, Carlene and Julie for joining me. You've been listening to The Lever Ball Show.